For many of us, thinking about death is too daunting, so we turn away. Yet embracing our mortality can help us create more meaning and purpose in our lives and cause us to explore important questions like, what do I most hope for? What's most important to me? And what is the legacy I want to leave behind? These are some of the questions that our wise guest, Dr. Stephen Pantelat, founding director of the UCSF Palliative Care Program, asks his patients on a daily basis. In this interview, Dr. Pantelat talks about what it's like to deliver the devastating news of a terminal diagnosis while holding the space for people to process. He talks about how to find hope, even in the most dire of circumstances. And we explore the power of gratitude, our relationship with denial, and the big questions to ask yourself when planning for the future. No matter what your situation, our hope is that this conversation will broaden your perspective and inspire you to get moving on what is most important to you. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Inside Journey. We are so excited to have our next guest on, Dr. Stephen Pantelat. He is an amazing doctor, and it's so funny because, Steve, I met you at least six years ago during Little League. Our sons played Little League together, and I just instantly connected with you. You are so warm, so friendly, so easy to talk to. You went to UCLA, like Kim and I. Yeah. Halfway, fellow Bruin, halfway through the season, my my dear cousin comes to a game, and he is a resident and to be a cardiac specialist, and he starts freaking out. You know him? Do you know who he is? I'm like, Steve, nicest guy in the world. Johanna, he is a rock star. He created palliative care at UCSF. He's like a legend. He And I said, he's a doctor? <laughs> Jonathan's like, yes. And so I tell that story just because you are just such a humble, warm, approachable person. And for you to not lead with your accomplishments says so much about who you are. But um, I'm going to lead with some of your accomplishments right now, just to let everybody know. Adam and I were just reflecting recently about how much we miss Little League and how fun that was. They were so- I really miss it, just hanging out. And and we still still will sometimes channel Kurt, you know, just a game of catch. Uh, Oh my gosh. I love it so much. I love it so much. Well, you are an incredible doctor, a professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. You're the inaugural chief of the division of palliative care at UCSF. And you have been training teams around the world to do this work. You've written over 90 scientific papers. You published an incredible book in 2017 called Life After the Diagnosis. You've helped thousands and thousands of people really, really navigate the news and the journey after a diagnosis and have brought so much healing and care and wisdom to people. And that's why Kim and I wanted you to, you know, to have you on the show because you have such an incredible experience of how to hold the space when people get the worst news of their life yeah, and what to do and how to face it and how to find hope and make a plan and reflect on what's important in life. And so hmm. we felt your wisdom would be gold 
to our listeners, even if they're not in the middle of something like a diagnosis, but just navigating life, the ups and downs and what's important to look at. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, you bet. Yes, we are uh, just so looking forward to this conversation and highly recommend your TED Med talk. Uh, for those of you who thank have you. not seen it, you're a phenomenal storyteller. And one of the things that I want to bring up is you talk about when, when you're defining what palliative care is, you talk about it in the context of a, a, a study that was done looking at people who had lung cancer and that half of the group did chemotherapy and the other half of the group did chemotherapy alongside and in addition to palliative care. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that 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 latter group that also did the palliative care experienced better quality of life, experienced less pain in the months following, and actually lived longer than those just doing the chemo. And so we're so curious, we'd love to start with, you know, what exactly is palliative care? How is it different than say hospice, which some people think about? And, and what do your, you and your team actually do for patients who are facing a terminal illness? Yeah, palliative care is, it's medical care that is focused on improving quality of life for people with serious illness. And what does that mean? So serious illness, things like cancer, certainly heart failure, dementia, Parkinson's disease, emphysema. So those are the serious illnesses. And palliative care is focused on helping people achieve the best possible quality of life in that time. What I tell my patients often, you know, it's, it's interesting when, when I first see a patient in clinic, I've now started because not everybody knows what palliative care is. So like your question. And so I'll say, well, you know, do you know why you're here? Do you know what palliative care is? <clears throat> About six months ago, one of my patients said, oh, you're the team that take people from sick to dead. <laughs> oh, great. I said, wow. Uh, wow. I said, one sec, I'm just going to write this down because this <laughs> is too precious to lose. So I wrote it down. I said, well, how about this? How about this? You know, this is about improving quality of life for people with serious illness. You know, our job is to help you have the best possible quality of life or to live as well as possible for as long as possible. That's our job. Help you live as well as possible for as long as possible. And she said, hmm, that's better. <laughs> I'll well, take I'm glad to know that. Oh, my God. <laughs> So what do you do, Steve, when someone gets a diagnosis? You know, it's like, I think everyone has really bad news come to them at certain times in their life, but this is some of the worst news you could ever receive. And um, I think for everyone out there, we get very uncomfortable when someone has something like this or some like other significant event happen in their life. What do you do when someone receives news like this? How do you handle it? And what can you tell people that are listening right now in an approach that would really help the other person? It is true that when you get bad medical news, it's about the worst news you can get. And it feels like you're going to die. Yeah, you know, I, I often describe it like you're in an airplane and you're just cruising along and you're reading your book and sipping a drink. And then suddenly the plane drops 10,000 feet and you look out and the engine is on fire. Like that's how it feels when someone says you have cancer. Like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And it turns out that actually that, that's not usually true. Usually there's a lot you can do to respond to that. And the first step is really to honestly, to be quiet, to just sit there quietly after sharing the bad news because the person is in shock and they can't hear anything. 
And, and there is this tendency to just keep talking because we're all so uncomfortable that we want to just fill the space and start keep talking. Um, but I often think of it like uh, on the Peanuts cartoons, you know, where the adults are just like, wah, 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 wah. And you can't, it makes no sense because you're in shock. Yeah. And so just sitting there quietly with someone, having your presence there, mm-hmm. you know, so much of this is just your presence and walking the journey with someone and being willing to witness and walk the journey, even knowing that it's a sad journey, but still being a partner with someone on that journey. And part of it is just being, being able to be quiet and letting, letting them feel it. And then sometimes you don't get very far after that. That's as much as you can get to because people are in shock. But I try to always leave people with the idea that there is a plan. Like there is, there is a response to this. Sometimes it's cure, sometimes, but there's always going to be some thing that we can do to make it better and to ensure them that not only that, but you're not, you don't have to go through this alone. You know, we will be there to help you get through this. I love what you said about holding the space because I think for so many people, whether it's they want to try to fix or help the situation or they're just really uncomfortable with the silence and the news that we tend to want to go into tell mode when someone is experiencing something really difficult in their lives. And what you're saying is the best thing that you can do is to just not say anything at all. Uh, Sometimes that's way better. Like if you don't know what to say, yeah. It is, it is in fact better to say nothing. Yeah. Hold the space, witness them, uh, and just to create, yeah, an opportunity for them to just feel what they're feeling with you there to support them. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, Steve, one of the things that we were really, Kim and I were really talking a lot about is how much hope factors into your planning process. So a lot of times people like when we work with them, they think the plan of action is, get your resume done, get offers, make decisions, take action. And Kim and I are always like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you take action, there is so many other things to think about. What's important to you? What's your why? What's, what's your time frame? What's all of that? So what do you find important in planning after something major happens in your life? What are the questions you come to the table with? You know, the question I ask my patients is when you look to the future, what do you hope will happen? You know, when you look ahead, what do you want to happen? And I find that a really great question for my patients who it's just like this different frame of suddenly thinking about, oh, what do I, you know, yeah, I hope that there'll be a cure. I hope that they come up with a cure. Absolutely. I hope that too. Look, I hope all these diseases go away. I mean, that would be great. Okay. What else? And when you begin to explore that, you find that, yeah, there is a lot of other things that people hope for and that really can create structure and priorities and get you thinking about things that really do make you happy and make you feel good. The patient I asked this question to, she was super sick in the ICU. And I said, what do you hope for? And she says, I want to be at my daughter's wedding. And that's so important. You know, when is that? Tell us about it. And it was going to be in 10 months in the future, you know, in the Napa Valley. And we just looked at the situation like, there's no way, you know, she's too sick. She won't get out of the ICU. She's not going to live for 10 months. And, you know, what do you say? And the temptation is to say, oh, you know, I hope so too. 
Mm. And then she thinks like, yeah, that's great. The doctor said he hopes so too. So I think, I think all, everything's good when I'm thinking the exact opposite. So we actually shared that with her and her daughter said, you know, this is really important to me too. So I'm going to get married right here in the ICU. Oh, wow. And sure enough, you know, three days later, she, they had a wedding in the ICU. And this is not that uncommon. When you talk to people, particularly palliative care people, this seems to happen a lot. But the daughter came in, she had this beautiful white wedding gown and her fiance was in a tuxedo and we, they put a corsage on the patient. And, you know, the room was just filled with family and all the nurses and respiratory therapists and doctors and our chaplain officiated at the wedding. You know, there wasn't a dry eye in the whole ICU. Wow. And it was, just, it was beautiful. And she got to experience the thing that was most important, you know, because we asked. Oh. And we asked about it sort of beyond just the medical. And it's so interesting to me that often when I ask people, what do you hope for? They don't just say I, a cure. That's not the first thing they say. So many of them do, but many of them don't. It Sorry, just helps to frame that. your thinking about, you know, what do I want to have happen? And I think that works in lots of places. You know, I, I, I may not think of it for myself as hopes, but I might think about it as a year from now, what, what do I hope will happen that will make me feel like I've had a really successful, satisfying year? Mm. So what I'm getting so far from this conversation, and I'm just thinking of all these different ways I can use this in my life. When someone's faced with a really big problem or challenge, the first thing to do is to just hold the space and be quiet. And then I love this idea of asking the question, what do you hope for? Because like you said, there's, there's the end goal, but then there's all these other things that people hope for. And it probably, yeah, puts them in the state of what is possible, what is important to me right now. So those are such powerful questions that we can ask ourselves or other people facing mm-hmm. difficulty. I'm just so curious to know, given that this is your line of work, this is what you're living and breathing day in and day out, how does it affect the way you live your own life? You talked a little bit about perspective and how it certainly gives you perspective, but what other advice would you give to people who are just going through whatever kinds of problems that they're facing? I think, you know, when there's adversity, when something bad has happened, I have so many patients who are, who are really dealing with things that are hard to fix and health situations are often just the the hardest things to deal with. And so I think, well, if this is just like a money problem or if this is like a colleague at work that's kind of bumming me out or we didn't get that grant that we were hoping for, I'm like, okay, well, it's not cancer. You know, I didn't get cancer today. So that's a pretty good, you know, I, I can write another grant. You know, I how does that, does that help you so much, Steve, to have that perspective? Do you like, do you sweat the small stuff ever? Totally. Yeah. You do? Yeah. You know, I'm human. I, I totally sweat the small stuff, but, but it does provide, it does help to be able to just take a step back. I would say in the moment, you know, I might be really disappointed, really frustrated, really angry, really sad about something. It's, I, it, it's not that I don't, I think, respond the way I used to, but I, I can also, at, at, there is a point at which I can sort of pull myself out of it a little bit. Yeah. And say, okay, this is bad. 
And there was a response, you know, my wife is also a physician, Cindy is a, is a hospitalist. And so we kind of share this together sometimes when we have, you know, prop, when we have a, a situation like, oh, this is not, this is really not great, but okay, this is not a health problem. Exactly. Do you fear, because I know in your TED talk, you said, you got to look at what is really going on because without that, you're not going to have any hope. If you're, if you're in this fantasy land or delusion or trying to tell yourself a story that's never going to happen, then you can't really plan. Do you look at what's going on in your life? Do you not turn away? Do you feel like that? And why is that such an important thing for people to do? Because we all want to just look the other way sometimes, like be in denial. Why is that so dangerous? I think denial gets a bad rap. So I think there's a lot about denial that's like excellent, actually. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful coping mechanism. I think there are times when denial is the only thing that gets you out of bed in the morning and kind of keeps you going. And I think that's particularly true. I see that in a lot of my patients, you know, being able to sort of deny a little bit of the reality of what's going on is maybe the thing that kind of gets you going. If denial means you don't face it at all, if denial means I, I don't, see it as bad as it is. And that allows me to kind of engage and keep going. I think that's really helpful. I think with denial, it's like, that's not happening at all. So I don't have to think about this. So I had a, I had a patient who had very advanced cancer. She had a, she was a single mom with a four-year-old daughter and, you know, she was in such denial. She just wasn't dealing with that issue. Like, well, who's going to take care of your daughter? She's like, no, 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 I'm going to get better. You know, I'm going to take care of her. Like, okay, we hope so too. I wish that were true, but you know, what's the plan B? What if that doesn't happen? Like who is going to take care of your daughter? You know, and we couldn't allow the denial to get in the way of this really important issue for her. And she was able, finally, she was able to deal with it. You know, we, and we helped her get the paperwork done and then she could sort of turn away from it again, in, in part because it was just too hard to think about, like leaving her daughter and what was going to happen. And yet there was a great relief in coming up with a plan. So I think when, you know, when denial is too strong and you're not, how are you going to make your mortgage payment? You have no plan. Like you need to come up with a plan. You can't be in denial. But there are times when I think that does help you move forward. So it's like having hope, right? Focusing on what you hope for. And at the same time, having a dose of reality and having a plan. It's so interesting because when you talk about denial, I think our culture, our society at large is so afraid of death, uncomfortable talking about it, don't even want to think about it, right? And yet, like you said, we're all going to die. I mean, it's going to happen to all of us. I'm so curious why is it important to face your own mortality? And, and how, do you, how do you think about death and dying for yourself? I see thinking about mortality, that the value of it is that it makes the present so important and so precious because time is limited. And so how you spend it matters. In some ways, that, that may be the biggest lesson that I've learned from the work that I do that you never know, you know, no one's promised tomorrow. So how do you live your life the way you want to live it in, in a way that's meaningful to you, the people you spend time with and how you spend your time and what you do with it, it really matters because it's, it's limited. And, you know, it might be 50 years limited and it might be five years limited and it might be five weeks limited, you know, and it's clearly when it's five weeks, it has a completely different impact on you, but even, but any life, and so it really, it really gets 
me thinking about how do I want to spend my life? That's not to say that, you know, every moment is a perfect moment. Uh, right. you know, there are the realities of living today. It's not about being a hedonist, but it is, it is thinking about what gives your life meaning the most and mm-hmm. what gives you the most satisfaction in your life. And then how do you attend to those things that are most important? Do you feel like this work has made you more and more focused on that in your own life, Steve? Do you feel like you really savor your life differently because of the work you do? Yes, I do. Mm. I think that's really been the lesson for my own life. I don't pretend to be like the master of living by any stretch. I get I get anxious and I get angry and you know, I have all the I have all those responses, but it does offer a particular perspective about what is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you carve out time to reflect on those questions? What is most important to me? What is the legacy I want to leave behind? What is mo- What has heart and meaning in my life right now? Like, how do you, I'm just curious, do you have a, a practice for that? Or is it something you find yourself discussing with others? You know, I started keeping a gratitude journal, writing things that I'm grateful for every night before I go to bed. There's actually evidence that this will actually make you happier in your life. So I started doing it last February, actually before the pandemic. Hmm. So it's, I have this little notebook by my bed and literally every night before I go to bed, I just write three things I'm grateful for. Hmm. It was interesting to me. One thing I noticed was pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, I was grateful for pretty much the same things. So the things that were most important to me and that I found, you know, my family, my loved ones, my friends, good coffee, like none of that changed uh, in the pandemic. So that, that was one thing I thought, oh, my life was just turned completely upside down. All of our lives were turned upside down in the pandemic. And yet the things that kind of mattered the most, Stay they the were same. still there. Uh, so that was really useful to, you know, and interesting just to engage with that and to see it. It's a good criteria though, right? Because, you know, Kim and I ask people sometimes, well, if you suddenly won the lottery, would you change your work? And a lot of times be like, in a heartbeat, I would leave this job in a second. And for Kim and I, we wouldn't. I wouldn't either. Mm -hmm. That's one of the beauties of getting older is I think that I would agree that the things that are most important to me today I'm real clear on my priorities. I feel good about them. You know, it it just, and I think that when you're younger, you just have less of that perspective. Yeah. It feels to me like now my path is a little clearer. You know, when you ask about my legacy, I feel like I'm clear about that, about what I want to do and what I want to leave and what my legacy, what I want my legacy to be. I'm clear about that. I started to think about that a lot more when I turned 50. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I had earlier. There was something about turning 50 that really made me think about that. We're just about to turn 50 this year, Steve. <laughs> yeah. So both Kim and I. Yeah. That was the year that did it for me to really think, like as I looked ahead and I thought, okay, you've come this far. What's left? What is going to be your legacy? What are the things that are most important? How do you think about that professionally? How do you think about it personally? You know, when I mentor people, I ask them these questions. You know, I I think often when I mentor people, I think about it in terms of goals. You know, a year from now, what do you want to have happen that will make you feel like you just had a good year? Personally, for you, yourself as an individual, for you and your family, kind of in your relationships, and then professionally. Like what would have to happen? And rather than like day to day, what do I want to do necessarily? It's like, how do I think about 
this like a year from now yes. to feel good about what I've done in the world. And then how do I prioritize that? For me, one of the things was, you know, when when our still now, just like having family dinner was like really important. And so if that's like a goal, if a year from now I can say, you know, five nights a week we had family dinner, that would make me feel like, wow, we had like, that was a, that was great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I'm sitting there at work, I think, oh, right. I didn't say working till seven would make, would make for a great year. I wrote family dinner would be a great thing. Right, right. Yeah, I love the way you plan with your people and your mentees. And it's very similar to what Kim and I do. And I know that Kim and I have talked a lot about how to protect our energy when we're working with people all day long, going through difficult stuff. I mean, you're dealing with people, you've watched many people die. And so how do you protect your energy, Steve? Like, how do you do it? Is it hard? Do you cry? Do you punch a punching bag? Like, how do you take care of yourself? It's something we think a lot about in our in our work. Something we think a lot about as a team. One benefit to working as a team, and you know, like you are a team, is that you have other people to support you and you support them. So that's part of it is working together and being able to share that experience. This work is sad. When you have to tell anybody that they have a serious illness, but you know, when you have to look at a 40-year-old mother of three and say, I wish that this cancer would go away, but it's not. So let's think about what else we can do to help you feel well and what's important. That's just sad. There's no getting around it. There's no amount of hope that's going to make you feel like this is okay. And yet there is still a lot that you can do to help to make things better than they were going to be. One perspective I take is like, I have the benefit of being able to say like, I didn't cause this problem, but let's together see how we might be able to make it a little bit better. This terrible thing happened and here it is. How can we help to make this terrible thing just a little bit easier, a little bit better, help you talk to your children about what this means and what's important. And do you want to write letters for them for when they graduate from high school or when they get married? You know, do you want to send them something or make a video or things like that, that we often um, will help people with, you know, as part of their legacy that can be really meaningful and really important to people. What you're talking about is so incredibly important. And I would imagine a lot of people who are dying don't do this, right? Think about these really important questions and and have these conversations, right? I, I admire and I would want that if if me or one of my loved ones was, when we get to that point, like what you guys do just feels so incredibly essential and important. Like your angels. Steve, when you were young, did you think this was what you're going to do with your life? Like, did you always have a compassionate, open-hearted, loving, like, this is a very specialized type of work. How did you, how did you fall into it? I thought sort of early in my life, maybe I'd, I'd like to be a doctor, you know, it was, it was like the classic good in science and like people. So there it was. So I thought about that early on, even when I got to college, I thought, oh, maybe that's something I will do. Look, palliative care didn't even exist as a specialty when I was in medical school. So it wasn't a thing that I learned about. What I did learn about in my medical school and residency was HIV. So it was during the kind of the height of the AIDS crisis, um, the AIDS epidemic. And we were taking care of 
so many young men here. I was here in San Francisco for medical school and residency and so many young men with this illness that we couldn't treat, we couldn't cure. And they were dying, young men, like younger than me, my age and younger who were dying. And it was just so tragic and kind of overwhelming in how sad it was. What did we do? We didn't have a name for it, but what we were doing was palliative care. How do we help you live well? How can we help you feel better? How can we help you with your relationships and with your legacy and with making meaning of what's happening? That's what we were doing. We just didn't have a name for what we were doing. And it really wasn't until I joined the faculty that I realized, oh, there actually is this thing called palliative care. So I had this kind of theme to the work that we learned about that I experienced early and which I have to say has had so many echoes with our current epidemic, like living through two pandemics, really. And if you would ask me in residency, taking care of really sick people and people approaching the end of life, I would have told you, I, I don't want to do that. I didn't, I didn't like that kind of work. But when it got flipped, when it had structure and I thought about, oh, but that's what we were doing. And it really is incredibly satisfying. And it's very intimate and incredibly meaningful. And you asked before, Kim, about like, how do you get through it? Isn't it sad? Don't you cry? Absolutely, I do. And it's also very nourishing. Like the work itself is very nourishing. And I think if you can achieve that point, I mean, it also can be very draining, but there are many interactions and many relationships with patients that are actually very nourishing at the same wow. time. If you can achieve that in your work, then, you know, it's just, it's like perfect because wow. the work you do actually nourishes you to do more work. Wow. I'm like filled with so many emotions. I, am so, I was, yeah, I shed some tears for sure. Yeah. Oh, I just, I just love how you found, found your place to this work. And I'm so grateful that you do what you do and that you're teaching others how to do it. And, um, there's a lot to think about and a, a just a, a, even a more appreciation for where we're at in our lives and what we can contribute and how we can live more meaningfully. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. This was lovely. Steve, yeah. Thanks for your work. I really appreciate it. That's all for now. If you are inspired by this podcast, hop on over to InsideJourney.com for more episodes and to learn about our work with leaders and teams. And make sure to subscribe to InsideJourney.com so you never miss an episode. As Brene Brown wisely said, When we deny our stories, they define us. When we own our stories, we get to write a brave new ending. We couldn't agree more. Own your story. Love your story. Share your story. You never know who it can inspire. Thanks for tuning in. Can't wait for more juicy conversations with you next month.